Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks. Well, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. My name's Adam Jones, and this is normally where you would hear Cameron insert his name. We've got a Cameronless episode today, so uh, we'll we'll try to keep it between the navigational beacons uh, with without him here as as my co-host. Just puts more pressure on me. So if you see Cameron out and about, make sure you tell him thank you for that. We've got an awesome guest today, and we had a, we had a great topic lined up. So we thought we'd go ahead and, and re- get this one recorded, even though Cameron's not around. Um, Kurt Beckman is with us today with Missouri Corn. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about water quality and agriculture and, and try to give some background backstory and, and kind of where we're at moving forward. So, Kurt, really appreciate you stopping in today to, to chat with me um, and get this recorded. And um, got kind of a new role for you anyway um, over at Missouri Corn. So do you want to explain that to us a little bit? Sure. And, and first of all, thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to be here today. Um, I, uh, I just recently... Um, changed roles and uh, was with Department of Natural Resources for 25 years, uh, working in a uh, majority of uh, the time there was in uh, agriculture related field and water quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, most recently was the uh, director of the Sun Water Conservation Program at DNR. Um, so I've been, I've been working at corn growers for since May, so about four months and uh, starting to transition and, and it's been a busy summer, but yeah. looking forward to Taking some of the history and the knowledge uh, that I bring from a regulatory agency and from the soil water program and implementing that and, and just continuing to uh, work with landowners, with growers, both corn and soybean growers, uh, to help them understand the importance of water quality and some of the things that we do at uh, Missouri Corn Growers and Soybean Associations. Right, right. Awesome. No, I, like I said, I certainly... Uh, definitely consider you an expert in the field. And so appreciate you taking time to, to come by and, and chat. But one of the things that makes you an expert is, is obviously your background and the amount of time you've spent around DNR and um, obviously leading the soil and water program and, and all those kind of things as well. So I think the first thing that um, we can do to, to give folks a little background um, would be um, kind of a little history of, of some of the um, I don't know, water quality issues or, or things that we deal with in agriculture, right? Um, and so I guess the first thing would be to, to sort of cover um, what pollutants um, are in runoff that come off of, of ag fields um, and then maybe a little history and, and I can do some of that or we can flip flop it, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> the, the main thing that we're looking at and feel free to jump in here, Kurt, would be, you know, uh, nitrogen and phosphorus in our, as far as nutrients in our runoff water. Um, also, you know, obviously crop protection products that may be hung up in there as well. Although typically on a national scale, I don't feel like sometimes that gets us the, I guess it depends on the whims of the press, right? But <laughs> sometimes it does give us, uh, the amount of press that the nutrients do. But a lot of times, um, when people say, uh, agricultural runoff, they're talking about nutrient pollution or nutrient levels. Um, and so you want to go in some of the, you know, point versus non-point and some of the history behind some of those uh, pollutants? Yeah, I think that'd be a good start. So, uh, you know, part of the uh, the nutrients, and I, I agree 100%, you know, we're primarily going to be talking about nitrogen, phosphorus, um, mm-hmm. and because those are, when we say nutrients, that's the primary uh, nutrients that are con- of concern, whether it be on the point source or non-point source. So I'll start off to begin with in the fact that uh, a point source is basically 
I, I look at it as something you can point to the source. Mm-hmm. So if it's a if it's an effluent pipe coming out of a lagoon, then obviously that's a point source. But you, you can you can actually locate that and, yep. and say this is the source of nutrients that are going into waterways or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then a non-point source is uh, mostly thought of as agriculture in general because it's it's not something that um, is directly you know a point source into that stream or water co- or in a water stream or whatever. So uh, non-point source is most often thought of as agriculture in general. Right. Uh, so some of the challenges there are that, um, you know, point sources are regulated in general uh, by EPA and DNR in the state. Those regulations are developed and um, they are, they have a permit to mm-hmm. operate and to discharge nutrients at certain levels or below certain levels to, and they have to monitor those. Whereas agriculture, it gets difficult because it's a non-point source and it's hard to really look at that, what's coming off of the landscape. Um, agriculture, I don't think in general, doesn't deny the fact that yes, we do lose nutrients, yep. um, but there are certain controls and certain measures that we'll get into, I think, that For sure. can mitigate those losses. Um, and that's part of the history. So. Um, part of this began many years ago in um, uh, the the Gulf of Mexico nutrient issue that we have there. It's a huge um, problem that we've been trying to figure out for years. And the, the fact that that hypoxic zone is growing and has been growing for several years. Um, so that's what kind of began the conversation years ago is the fact yep. that we need to address this from a non-point source side and a point source side and figure out what, how we can reduce that hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Definitely kind of brings a highlight to the Mississippi River Basin. Um, you know, just in a, we're in a higher rainfall area, right? You know, we've got more runoff. It's just, I think these are somewhat localized issues, but um, but certainly aggregated when it comes to the Mississippi River Basin, because it kind of seems like everybody's on the same team as far as saying, hey, we all put water into that river and that river system. That's what causes the hypoxic zone. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and so how do we come together that way? So, yeah. And <clears throat> I think from those, those two, you know, kind of nutrient pollutants also, um, it, I, I know we always say nitrogen and phosphorus, but Nitrogen, we're really typically talking about nitrates. Yeah. And, and again, you're talking a, a, a particle not bound to the soil, so leachable. I think that's typically where, where we end up with nitrates in our water systems or our waterways. Um, as it leaches through the soil profile, comes out, either comes out somewhere else or runs off with, with surface runoff water. Um, that's typically what we're talking about there. Phosphorus, definitely not a leachable nutrient, um, binds to the soil really well. And so typically when we talk about phosphorus pollution, you're talking about direct, it's riding along with the soil, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we're uh, losing soil off of that field or off of that production practice. And then that, the phosphorus tied to that soil is actually what's, what's causing the issue in the, in the waterway there as well. So during kind of the beginning of the, the hypoxia era, um, and, and if you don't remember specific dates, that's totally fine. But at, at some point, you know, kind of all the states kind of came together and, and had to kind of make a plan as far as um, what they were going to do about some of this nutrient pollution. You remember kind of how that all kind of came around? Um, I do. I do know. I'm not sure when it all started in the beginning, but it was probably late 90s, maybe early 2000. Yeah. Um, but in 2008, uh, there was a memorandum from EPA that basically established um, that the 12, there's 12 states that are in that Mississippi River Basin that, you know, lead to a mm-hmm. lot of the Gulf of Mexico right. issues. 
um, that EPA promulgated that they, they would like for each state to write a nutrient loss reduction strategy. And that strategy needed to address how the state was going to implement practices or restrictions, regulations, whatever, mm-hmm. on both non-point and point, point sources um, to, to reduce the nutrients making it to the Gulf, basically. Right. So right. We, we began with uh, a large stakeholder group, whether it was uh, municipalities, the point sources, mm-hmm. whether it was ag stakeholders. We had a lot of ag stakeholders in there, government agencies, non-government agencies uh, that got together for several months and put together a, a final uh, nutrient loss reduction strategy, I think, in 2014. Okay. And since then, that's kind of where we've been establishing that. Now, some states... Uh, set goals, numeric goals as to we want to reduce phosphorus, you know, leaving uh, the landscape by this much um, or or nitrogen same way. And they knew they were doing some work and they were implementing practices that were already reducing those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Missouri as a group decided, you know, it was best just to talk about what we're doing now and how we can improve and reduce the nutrients but it's hard to set a numeric goal when you really don't, at that point in time, we didn't really have a good measurement. You know, what are the right. metrics? Right. You know, we can say we're going to reduce it by 30% by 2025, but if we don't know how to measure that specifically, then maybe we should just, you know, come out and say, this is the efforts we know will reduce. Sure. So we were one of the states of the 12 that decided that we this is what we were going to do. And we came up with that plan. And that strategy is out there today. We've been updating it every four or five years, uh, but it's 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 working well. And, yep. and Missouri's pretty unique in the, some of the things that we do, especially in agriculture and soil and water conservation. That if we reduce uh, soil erosion uh, significantly, then we know we're reducing that phosphorus, as you kind of alluded to earlier. Right, right. And I, it, it is it's somewhat dangerous to put those numeric sideboards on things because there's so much variability in the system. You know, it's like you want to tie your cart to something that's saying we've reduced our phosphorus effluent by X or whatever. Um, you know, you get a couple of, I mean, that, that can be influenced by rainfall, right? On a really wet year, you flush more water through the system. You're going to flush more pollutant through the system. You're going to flush more nutrient through the system. Um, you also, you know, kind of have, a, I know in the phosphorus side of things, and it depends on who you talk to, I guess, on some of this stuff, but. Um, you know, we have a lot of residual pollutant in the system, if you will, you know, that, you know, that soil that ran off 25 years ago, maybe hung up somewhere in the stream system. And at what point does that, you know, come out the other end or come out to wherever you're measuring it? You know, some of those kind of things that, that you're bound to, we can't really directly control some of that stuff with, um, with practices that we're putting in the field, I guess, if you will. Right. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and some of the, you know, this, this hypoxia task force that I talk about, you know, there are several, uh, there are several entities, whether it be government agencies or some of the states themselves that are monitoring nutrients in the river systems. Um, uh, for instance, USGS, Geological Sur- Survey, um, they do a lot of in-stream monitoring. So mm-hmm. they're monitoring those nutrients and they have trends and different things. But a lot of times you hear of, you know, the Gulf is growing, the Gulf of Mexico is growing and it's just getting worse. And sometimes there's, uh, I don't want to say, you know, false um, uh, 
uh, false news stories out there, but sometimes they pick on the points that would make it look like it's really getting worse. But sure. the trend in the last four or five years um, is really going down. The size of the Gulf of Mexico is going down a little bit. Now, one bad year, obviously, yeah. and, and it can go back up. I understand Absolutely. that. But then the actual trend I think we're seeing is going down. So um, some of the research, you know, we, we, we have to be able to show what we're doing in Missouri is reducing the size of the Gulf. And I think we're, we're good at that, but I think there's things we can do better. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think kind of the next point of history that we probably ought to at least touch on um, before we get into some of the practices and, and what you guys are actually working on just to fully cover the background of this, I guess, issue would be the whole Des Moines Waterworks thing. Um, and this was circa 2016, 17, probably mm-hmm. right in there somewhere. Um, and, and maybe you have a lot of background on it. Um, so you want to kind of take a stab at, at giving us what they were actually shooting at up there? Well, I don't, I don't have a lot of background on it. I do know that I think, you know, it was an issue where, um, you know, I think it was nitrates that yep, were basically absolutely. in drinking water. Mm-hmm. And um, the, that's where you get into the finger pointing because the yep. Des Waterworks was the treatment facility. Um, and they were uh, finding high nitrates. And mm-hmm. uh, obviously the, the, the landscape around this area is heavy agriculture. Sure. So the finger pointing uh, began with agriculture and it kind of uh, gave agriculture a bad name. Oh my gosh, you know, I can't yep. believe that um, this hasn't been, you know, an issue before. And it's here it is, and it's water under the bridge, if you will, no yeah. pun intended. But, sure. um, you know, it, it came to a point to where um, everyone, especially in those 12 states, uh, was a little bit concerned about this could happen in Missouri or mm-hmm. where's this going to happen next. That's right. Um, and as you said, it was, you know, almost eight years ago or yep. more uh, that this came about. Um, and I honestly don't know where it is today. I haven't really... Um, kept track of it all that yep. much, but yeah. I do think that some of that has been mitigated in ag practices uh, by uh, Iowa Department of Ag and Natural Resources probably have improved that, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know the but, status of yeah, it. Yeah, there's, <clears throat> there's a lot of practices that have been targeted on some of those watersheds, but essentially the way, the way I always understood it um, was, and uh, something we didn't cover, maybe well enough is is that as a drinking water system you know they're a surface drinking water system so they're pulling water out of um, the river to treat and put into their municipal water supply well at certain times of the year the nitrate concentration in that river system skyrocketed so they had to somehow treat that nitrate treat that water to to remove nitrate um, to, to make it safe to drink that is an extremely expensive practice. And so, you know, they were scrambling for funds to try to upgrade their treatment system and um, put in all this new equipment. And, uh, you know, their argument was that that wasn't, that shouldn't be on the citizens of Des Moines. And they were trying to push that financial burden off on someone else. So uh, my interpretation is that they essentially sued the drainage districts. Mm -hmm. And, And Iowa is a little different story than us because they have so much subsurface drainage in, in a lot of those systems. Um, whereas we have some, but not, not near to the extent of what Iowa does. And so I think they were trying to basically point to the effluence of those drainage systems saying that's a point source, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> it lost 
their their litigation um, at some level. I don't remember if it got to like the Iowa Supreme Court, I believe, is where they they eventually dismissed it. And um, and then the waterworks kind of threw up their hands and said, OK, we're done. Um, because essentially the the narrative, I, as I interpreted it, when it finally got dismissed was um, was Iowa said, no, nah, that's not really the role of those drainage districts. We didn't put them together for that. We put them together for this purpose back in the early 1900s or whatever. It's not their job to to treat nitrate levels. It's their job to you know, work on levee systems and drainage and those kind of things to, to create more arable land, if you will. So, um, I don't know, I don't know that I would call that being really resolved. Yeah, <laughs> it, right. it kind of got, it's sort where of I struggled. It's like, yeah, I'm not it's, sure where that is. Yeah. So it sort of, in my opinion, honestly got dismissed on a bit of a technical ground. Um, and so I think that's why that you still see so much emphasis, um, on some of these practices in Iowa. I, I, say Iowa, especially, obviously stuff is going on all around the Midwest. That certainly brought, um, kind of, uh, some very high level press to that, to that issue in Iowa. And so I, again, I don't know that it actually, I feel like it kind of got dismissed on a technicality, mm-hmm. um, as far as they pointed the finger at the drainage district. Whereas I think a lot of people are asking if they would have pointed the finger at an individual tile outlet or something like that, would that have changed their, uh, you know, the, the outcome of that entire case? And so I think it still has some people a little bit on edge as far as, as far as some of that goes. Um, that brought a lot of press um, into, into the system. And I, and I think got a lot of people thinking about what practices can we do to mitigate some of this? Um, whereas it's like, hey, if we can point to an individual tile outlet or if you can point to an individual field and start saying, hey, there's a lot of pollutant coming off of here. Um, what can we do to fix that? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of gets into some of the practices and also kind of gets into some of the data of how do we quantify some of these losses? Um, So I'm going to kick it to you and let you kind of at least get us started down the road of um, practices that we can do to mitigate some of these things. And then I know you guys have done a lot of stuff to collect some of that data. Um, So hopefully that's good enough intro into some of that where you can um, start to give us some of that too. Sure. So um, actually almost five years ago, um, we, we, and I say we, I mean the Ag Industry Corn and Soybean Association uh, came to uh, the Stone Water Program primarily at DNR, which is where I was primarily, um, and talked about uh, trying to uh, set up a project where we would do some edge of field monitoring to figure out uh, what we're losing on some of these ag fields. Now, uh, you have to understand that Missouri is unique uh, because we have the soil water sales tax. Yep. And for over 30 years, 35 years plus, we've been implementing soil water conservation practices. We've cut the loss of so- the soil loss in half um, just by implementing that program. And then you have NRCS has a, a program or several programs that really mirror what soil and water is doing. So we're putting more uh, practices on the ground than most states. Uh, what we need to do is is figure out what's the effectiveness of some of these practices. Right. And when they came to us and said, "Hey, you know, um, we would like to do this project, and we want to we want to put it in. We want to put it on a farm. We don't want to uh, just a small research plot or whatever. We're going to put actual uh, measuring devices, uh, flumes, is what we have set up on mm-hmm. farms to capture the surface water runoff from fields." and figure out what we're losing in nitrogen and phosphorus. 
So currently, uh, almost in year five now, we've got some data and we're going to be uh, doing an analysis of that data here this fall. And, and next spring, we'll probably have a lot more information. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some preliminary information on, on what's working, what's not. Um, but we have a total of 13 of these flumes or sites uh, out there in mostly in north central northeast Missouri that are measuring different conservation practices. Some of those practices are uh, obviously cover crops is a big one on, on a lot of those. Uh, some of those are grassed waterways. And then we've got some tile drain terraces that we're looking at. Okay. And then at the Greenlee Research Center in North Missouri, we've got a bioreactor that they actually installed, I think, about three or four years ago. That is a denitrifying uh, mm-hmm. bioreactor. Studying some of that, the effectiveness of that, and below that, we've got a saturated buffer that we're actually studying. A practice that we haven't used that commonly in Missouri. I know right. they are in Iowa, yep. um, but we're trying to figure out how effective those are yeah. um, because a lot of the nutrient or a lot of the soil conservation practices where we're addressing. Uh, soil loss uh, is your phosphorus in, but we don't have right. a lot of research on right. that. Yeah, we know. I was going to say, but we know that they, in some of this stuff, we know they work, right? We know that they're saving soil. We know mm-hmm. these practices are saving soil. That is not the question. But sometimes, in terms of being able to speak up and uh, argue your case a little bit, if you will, you need the numbers behind. You can't just say, this saves soil. We know it saves soil, but how much and how much, how many nutrients can we also save in some of those things? So yeah, for sure. Cool. So, um, out of what you guys have looked at so far and maybe we didn't do a good enough job addressing all the practice, but yeah, you, like you said, cover crops were, you know, covering the soil, not losing as much utilizing some of that leftover nitrate. If we do have leftover nitrate after the crop, comes off, you know, we've got a growing plant there to try to utilize that. If if the nitrate's being absorbed in a plant and used in plant growth, it's not floating away going down the river, right? Um, you know, terraces, there's a lot of edge of field things that can be extremely helpful um, as far as buffer strips, anything that slows down our, our effluent water, those kind of things and can allow some of that stuff with that soil to drop out. Um, all those kind of things are great. You mentioned the, the bioreactor and the saturator buffer. Those are a couple things, um, along with wetlands, I think that's something that we probably don't talk about enough uh, from a water quality standpoint, um, are, are wetlands in an ag system. But the principle on the bioreactor in a wetland is actually roughly the same mm-hmm. in the fact that you're, you're storing the water enough to you know, kind of create anox- anoxic conditions or uh, remove oxygen from that water. And then, um, you know, bacterial process will, will also reduce the nitrate. Um, some, you know, like I said, wetland, whether we push water into a wetland and it's stored there for a little while before it actually enters the stream system. Same thing with a bioreactor. We've, we've taken some of that tile water, pushing it into essentially a big underground chamber that has, uh, it's like full of wood chips. Yep. Um, and, um, and same process happens, essentially. So, and then the saturated buffer takes, takes what's left of that water and um, doesn't directly dump it into a stream system. It essentially um, allows it to kind of trickle out through the soil profile uh, down close to whatever drainage way it is um, using perforated tile, yeah. essentially. Um, but um, those are, like I said, those are not as common in Missouri, which is why I tried to explain them because um, a lot of stuff you see in Iowa or you see in very tile drain system, Minnesota, Iowa, those kind of where 
there are places where obviously most of the landscape is pattern tiled. We right. don't we don't have we those. Don't have as much. Not right. not as much. I mean, it's it's out it's out there, um, but we're still doing a lot of surface drainage yeah. type type things in Missouri. So, out of what you guys have done, what practices have you kind of quantified some benefit or had some things? Obviously, it's hard to show charts and graphs and things like that in a audio format here. But right. which ones kind of jumped out that said, "Hey, these these are actually working really well." Yeah, so and you know the the outcome of this is that we will be able to show probably the key thing here is is like I kind of mentioned earlier is is that uh, these these sites are on the farm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a Absolutely. larger scale and and as you know and and most growers know that you know they're going to make decisions differently. It's not going to be this is what I'm going to do exactly for five years, whether it's right. their you know application of you know things changed, and we yep. know that. And that's the that's somewhat to me the benefit of having a, a larger scale on in the on the farm example is is that you know you, you change the grower is going to change their. Uh, operation in that five years a little bit they may do something different or whatever so you know they're making those decisions and and we want to influence them to understand by some of the decisions they make whether it be for economic reasons uh with fertilizer being so high and different things that we understand that and that's that's part of it and agriculture is not just a straightforward right uh you're doing this every year so being on that scale i think is important uh on the farm and then we can show those landowners that are you know uh we show them the data and they say well you know i wish i I wish i'd have known that earlier because this is good for me because maybe i should do a split application as opposed to losing all of it from one application or whatever mm-hmm. so it helps them individually make those decisions and when we get these results it will help everyone understand that you know decision making is obviously the most important thing when it comes to nutrient runoff um, so you know a grass waterway is a practice that we've really had we've done a lot of grass waterways in missouri sure. through cost share programs some of these are just voluntary. We don't yep. really know how many. I mean, you drive down the road in Missouri, you see grass waterways everywhere. Very effective practice yep. because, you know, before it really reaches the end of that waterway, there's a lot of filtration that takes place, mm-hmm. especially on the phosphorus end, obviously, Absolutely. because it's yep. tied to water. So uh, grass waterways are, are you know, phenomenal practice. And then a lot of times you've got the, you've got the terraces that are draining into that grass waterway. So it's yep. a little bit of a, you know, you, you start layering these practices, what I call it, and then the effectiveness just gets even better. So if you're taking 30 or 40% of the phosphorus out with a terrace or a waterway, then you add the other practice um, and then you start adding cover crops. And some of our systems are looking at this. Um, if you do all three of those, and some landowners may not want to do uh, cover crops before corn or whatever because sure. of obvious reasons, economic and just the, the trouble of planting or whatever. But the layering of these practices is very important, and we're finding that, and we're, we want to be able to, a lot of the folks, you know, going back into the, the stream monitoring and other things, they use models, and they don't really have the raw data that we're getting from this project. Yep. So we're hoping that we can um, we can share this data and they can kind of use that to uh, tweak their models and, and put that in there and and hopefully we'll justify some of the things that they're showing. Missouri is very unique in soil types and different runoff systems mm-hmm. uh, all across the state. Um, so 
you know, you have to really be able to zoom in on a watershed and say, this is what happens in this in watershed this as one. opposed to what yep. happens maybe in the boot heel or Northwest Missouri. So, yep. <clears throat> no, that's, that's so important to you. And, um, and I can imagine you get some reactions from, from the actual growers that are looking at their own data, uh, you know, on their own flume or whatever, mm -hmm. because none of us want to lose these things. Right. Um, matter of fact, most of us don't necessarily even want to lose the, the surface water because you're going to need it back at some point, right. <laughs> much less the nutrients that are in there um, just because of the cost of, I mean, my goodness, I don't, I don't want to see nitrate in, in the water Vegan simply from, yeah, you can call me greedy or whatever, but yeah. I, you know, I, I pay for that. Right. <laughs> so like, I don't want to lose it. Um, I want that going in my crop. I don't want it going down the, down the waterway. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I can, I can imagine that you get a lot of, um, reaction. I think that's, um, something I wish we could, you know, show more people or, you know, like individual data off of, because I think that's always a lot of, you know, just on the soil health side or whatever, it's always a lot of pushback as well. My field's different, you know, and to, to, to multiple degrees, it probably is. Mm -hmm. Um, but it would, it would be very cool to, to show this data to, to growers. So I'm sure that's a, um, uh, an interesting thing that, that you've gotten a chance to do. So where do you kind of see what you're doing um, going forward then? Um, are you going to start to look at different practices, um, start to look at some of these things more long-term? Because so I could see how that, that could change certainly over time. Sure. I, I think we, we will probably keep um, you know, some of these stations in past this five years. Um, we may, we may try to do some other practices. You know, there's other things that we haven't looked at. You know, Missouri also has uh, built a lot of uh, structures, ponds, mm -hmm. um, for erosion control. So we don't really have any numbers on what a, um, a, a pond that's built for erosion control, how much sediment you're saving. Obviously, it's treating gully erosion, which you're sure. losing a lot of soil that way. Right. So that's a, that's a, that's a interesting practice that... Uh, will be a different setup, obviously, but I think it's possible. So we're trying to figure out, can we monitor the effectiveness of ponds? Um, another practice that, you know, and, and you know this, uh, Missouri uh, has opportunity is, you know, field borders um, and different practices like that, edge of field practices. Yep. Uh, it's hard to sell to a landowner, obviously. Um, and, and we're trying to... And, encourage landowners to implement those practices because that's a, a really critical place in the field where we lose a lot of the nutrients and capturing that and keeping it on there just a little bit longer is important. So now setting up a flume at the edge of field, just uh, in a field border situation where you have a control before the field border and then after yeah. is going to be tricky. I don't know if yeah. we can get that set up. I know there are states that have tried to do that. I don't know about the success, but I think um, that's something that I'd like to do too is, you know, what's the effectiveness of like a field border and maybe some um, uh, grass vegetative strips, you know, as opposed to terraces, different things like that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, common sense tells us just because we've seen these edge of field practices work so well um, that in certain cases, you know, we've all seen it. So common sense tells you, yep, it absolutely works. But again, trying to get the numbers behind that yeah. can be, could be very difficult and very tricky. Um, and is going to change from, from place to place. I could see for sure. Um, you know, it, so, so much of these things it's, yeah, you're exactly right. Those are not as popular as terraces and those kind of things because it involves removing acres from production, mm -hmm. which sometimes makes sense. Sometimes doesn't make sense. It depends on the operation. So, 
so I could see that for sure. Probably and, one of the things too. Uh, sorry. Um, no, go ahead. One of the things too that we are finding is is that it's not. You know, you think of these practices and the effectiveness is, you know, what's on the landscape at the time. But the big thing is, is that Missouri, especially in these last five years or in the last couple of years, mm -hmm. is that rain events are so critical. Yeah. So it's a matter of timing. You know, we may get a hard rain in December where if you don't have a cover crop on, yeah. uh, you're losing, you're losing a lot, you yeah. know, and, and uh, seems like obviously... Uh, I don't I don't want to say climate change because I know that's a the subject that but it's true sure. in the fact that, you know, rainfall events in Missouri are uh, very unpredictable. But if you're if you're implementing a cover crop right after you harvest, then you know that you've got that that cover uh, for at least yep. part of the winter or most of the winter and into spring. Uh, very important. And that's what we're finding is, is that. Uh, rain events, that, which are unpredictable, yep. uh, is a huge factor in all of these practices because um, just depending on the time of year, you may not have a lot of ground cover. That's right. Yeah. So all the infrastructure, all these practices and all these things for maybe really one or two of those major rain events a year is when you're really losing. Yeah. Um, and it's it's about having that system in yeah. place 365 days a year to catch that one six inch rain because that's when you're, yeah. that's when it's going. You and that, that's part of the data we're collecting, not just the nutrients coming off, but we're collecting, um, you know, how how fast the rain came and, you know, was it in two inches in an hour? Was it a longer period? And that makes a huge difference because sure. you've got that infiltration availability if it doesn't come too fast. Mm -hmm. But it gets to a point to where um, those events, the timing of those events, uh, time of year, but also how fast uh, that precipitation comes. And, yeah. and that makes just a huge difference, which sounds like, you know, common sense. But at the same time, you don't realize it until you start looking at these things. Sure. That when that when that precipitation bar jumps on a graph uh, in an hour, then your nitrogen and phosphorus loss you know, is obviously going up quickly. Jumps so, right along with it, especially, and I've seen some of your data, but it seemed like, you know, especially if that was like somewhere close to the, you know, kind of the off season where maybe a nutrient application had happened or something yeah. like that. Um, and so, yeah, just makes those application timing and um, all those kind of things just absolutely more, more critical when you're, you know, that is kind of our danger season for those five or six inch rains, it seems like, or those whatever amount it is heavy rain that's going to run off, you yeah. know, which leads into another practice that I really haven't mentioned is that future wise that we need to look at is just, just uh, simple nutrient management, yep. you know, as the flow, uh, when you apply kind of the four R's, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, the rate, the time, et cetera. So we kind of know uh, when you're applying, how that affects what you're losing. That's right. Yeah. Cause it certainly does, especially if it's, if, I say, especially if it's close to the application time, but I think that's pretty much correct because if you can get, um, you kind of get that fertilizer through lesser rain events, you know, incorporated into the soil, whether, you know, whether it's on no-till or, or even if it's been, you know, some sort of tillage has incorporated into the soil, then it's a matter of, you got to lose the soil to lose the, you know, the nutrient. Whereas if it's laying on top and, or something and you get a major rain, it, it can be lost with the, yep. with the rain. Um, for sure. And I, I think that you mentioned it a couple of times, but that infiltration is critical to, to, um, minimizing some of these things. So something like cover crop, if, if that's being implemented as a soil health system and we can somehow improve, uh, infiltration on those fields, I feel like that's a big, that's a big deal because, sure. um, 
though a lot of those nutrient spikes seem to come in those major rainfall events when they when they comes off essentially you're losing something every time water runs off the field right because there are nutrients in the soil profile even if it's something that hasn't been fertilized in 50 years there are still nutrients in that soil and so essentially you're losing a little bit every time it, the water runs off the field so if we can reduce the you know some of those maybe you get an inch of rain and nothing runs off that's a big deal yeah. from a from a water quality standpoint versus you get an inch of rain and it all runs off so i think those infield infiltration rates can be critical to to allowing some of those practices to really work to fruition as well a couple more things that <clears throat> that i had kind of put down that i, I kind of thought you know and both of them kind of deal with um what you mentioned before some of the climate change and the carbon conversations and all, all that be that as as it may that kind of is seems like lately here um, is is what kind of gets the press right um, and you talk about something that's super hard to quantify and and that <laughs> it would also be that right some of the carbon conversations and those, I mean those are extremely hard to quantify much harder than what what you're doing I feel like there's a good message in a lot of that data that you guys have produced like we have a good message in a lot of what we're doing from a water quality perspective. That same message is harder to portray, I feel like in the in the carbon or climate change discussion. And so sometimes I wonder, and I'm just asking your opinion or your two cents on this, um, I feel like this water quality stuff probably should be more of the flagship banner, right? Than, um, than some of the soil carbon stuff, in my opinion, just because I feel like we have, a, um, we have better data, we have, we can we can easily prove that this stuff is absolutely effective yeah. at, at doing a lot of these things. But I agree 100. Um, percent You know, I I keep this as the top priority for for the ag industry in in general. Not you know the water quality is yep. something that we have to maintain. Um, still, I don't want to say skeptical about carbon credits and carbon sequestration, but there's a lot of you know, unknowns there mm -hmm. and, and it'll take time. Yep. It will take time to measure that. And if, can we measure it? I don't sure. know. Yeah. That, that's the thing. And, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of private individuals that are throwing money at the carbon credit and I get that they're mm -hmm. wanting to offset, you know, yep. some of their carbon. Um, but I, it's really tough to know. And I, I think we're just going to continue to focus right now. Yep. Um, yeah, we're watching those, those things. Um, but we want to. We, we feel like we're well into this study, and that we need to continue that. So sure. And, and I talk a lot about obviously for corn growers and for soybean growers, they're both often the same people. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the things we do in, um, you know, in Missouri is very, very well known for livestock, especially the beef industry. Yep. Uh, we do a lot of conservation practices on that landscape as well. And sure. you all have been involved in some of those efforts. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, fencing livestock out of streams, um, creating uh, uh, the opportunity for landowners to uh, go to more native warm season grasses will improve, you know, some of those benefits as well. And I want to point that out. It's yeah. not, we're not just looking at corn and soybean Absolutely. type things. And that maybe is some practices that we would like to, um, you know, work with some of the cattlemen's too, yeah. or, or some of the, the, um, the livestock folks. And sure. We put a lot of buffers in to streams 
uh, where we exclude them and, and, you know, in the state yep. through government programs or whatever. Yep. And that's important because, uh, you know, it's something that uh, a lot of people see is cattle in the stream and it's really, it's probably not the best thing. So sure. by, by creating those buffers along those, uh, that's important as well. So it's yep. not, not just the corn and bean world, but Absolutely. it's also in the livestock arena. Well. No, that's, that's, that's a good point. That's a whole landscape that, that requires the same amount, if not more, uh, conservation practice installation at times. Um, and we, you know, um, a lot of times doesn't come to the front of the conversation just like it didn't today. Right. Um, uh, but, but something that, that we should be thinking about cause there's nutrient loss there too. Or well, candy, and right? nutrient management in, in those, uh, scenarios is just as or more <clears throat> important in a crop Correct. scenario because, Correct. you know, they, they obviously are utilizing, uh, different yep. uh, nutrient management, uh, practices in, in that setting as well. Yep. Yep. No, I think it's important that we don't get distracted by a lot of the carbon market stuff, um, the money influences, um, you know, infusions that have come with those. Um, I tend to see see it as somewhat positive just in the fact that a lot of the practices are the same. You know, we're, we're pushing pushing on some of those soil health practices. Uh, carbon markets in the, in the livestock game are, are pushing on some of the rotational grazing and, and those kind of things arguably could all be water quality practices as well. Right. So we're pushing on the same practices. We've just got to be careful of the messaging and, and how it comes across and those kind of things. I, I kind of get down in the weeds sometimes on like saying, Hey, that's a, this is a great practice. This is what we need to be doing anyway. Let's move forward with it. Yeah. Um, but, but again, you've um, it, it can be a dangerous game kind of going uh, one whim versus the other on um on kind of how the media plays things and, and how society looks at things too. So, absolutely. but, and, and similar to that, you know, I, there's been, uh, there's been some people playing around with water quality credits, similar to, to carbon credits. Um, doesn't seem to be a lot of demand for those, or I, you know, I'm not sure if that's going somewhere or if it's not, um, there are some, some of the, you know, carbon platforms that are, somewhat quantifying some of those kind of things, but I, I don't think they've had much uptake as far as people paying for the actual credit out the other end. So whether you generate it or not, if it's somebody's not willing to buy it, it it's probably not worth a whole lot, right. but, um, but those do, that's, those do and can come along for the ride in some, in some cases with, with some of that uh, carbon mitigation stuff. So. Well, Kurt, what did we miss through kind of getting all through that? I guess um, one thing that we probably missed are just some of the, um, and I know we've, we've talked about some of these things on the podcast before, but um, ways folks can some can get some of this kind of stuff paid for. So um, I feel like you have pretty good background in, in diving off in some of that. So Yeah, and I think, you know, um, first of all, I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, all of us are wanting to promote is that we want to keep, uh, I'll just start out by saying we want to keep these whether it's a government program or if it's a, you know, a private industry paying for carbon credits or whatever, uh, we want to keep this voluntary. But absolutely, probably where we struggle a little bit is, and, and I think I've heard you mention this, and the fact that we're blessed and cursed at the same time to have so many programs in Missouri yep. that want to, um, I don't like to use the word incentivize, but it is kind of an incentivize sure. to to promote these practices. So uh, part of the uh, problem is, is that landowners get confused. I've talked to some of the, even the board members um, mm -hmm. on corn growers and soybean associations and asked if they do cost share. It's one of the first things, you know, come yeah. for where I did. It's like, yeah. hey, have you ever done cost share? 
And they'll say, well, yeah, and I'm not for sure, you know, they're not even for sure where it came from. And they're, you know, it's it's tough to know because you go into a USDA office and you've got the Salt Water Conservation District folks there. Uh-huh. You've got the NRCS folks there and they're offering uh, similar programs. And it just depends on the timing of when you go in there as to which one's more available. That's right. Um, so, you know, your first stop should be your local county solar water district yep. or NRCS office. Most of those are housed in the same place in Missouri. Every county has one. So mm-hmm. that's a start because those folks are very good at prescribing the practice. Um, but the main thing is, is I want to emphasize is, is that this is voluntary. Uh, we're to, we don't want to have to force growers into putting in terraces or putting in practices that we know are uh, reducing nutrients. Um, They should be getting some economical benefit from putting these practices in. And by collecting some of this data, we're hoping that we'll, you know, show them that this is what you're getting and this yep. is what you're saving. Uh, wasn't always an ag economic. Uh, uh, I mean, I had ag, ag economics in, in school, but, uh, you know, you think about that marginal cost and marginal return. At what point do they need to uh, back off on certain things to where they're they're getting the same return? Yeah. So by putting in these practices, hopefully they can cut down on some of their, their input costs. And for the carbon world, you obviously you want to reduce the number of passes on a field and sure. and several other reasons. Yep. So by doing some of these practices, you know, we're hoping to get a lot of benefit in that way. But we really promote the voluntary part of it. But at the same time, a landowner's gotta be he has to kinda of understand or know when he walks into one of those offices what his goals are, you mm-hmm. know. Um, not just build the terrace system or whatever, but what am I gonna get out of it? Um from a conservation standpoint, That's right. and there are secondary benefits, you know, sure. um, for doing some of these practices other than the water quality we talk about. So I think it's very important for uh, landowners to just understand that to start the conversation, they just really need to um, kind of have an idea of what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to give them the tools they need to make those on-farm decisions That's right. as to what their goals are. And yeah. how they want to leave the land and and pass it on to the next generation. Yeah, for sure. Yep. No, well said. I I <clears throat> the um I do say that that we're we're blessed and we're cursed with so many different vehicles to to get someone to the finish line, right? Mm-hmm. Um and and that can get can get confusing for folks, but it's it's definitely a good thing that we have so many different ways to kind of get them there, you know. And um, some probably better utilized than, than others and, um, some that are probably way underutilized and, and, uh, we do need to keep it voluntary. Um, it's voluntary as long as people are taking advantage of it, right? It's voluntary yeah. as long as there's uptake of that and, um, it's voluntary until it's not voluntary. And I think that that's what, what should be at least in the back of everybody's mind, um, as, as we look at how production happens. Uh, on everybody's individual farm. So, um, but um, yeah, just to, there's so many different things from, you know, from state cost share to, to equip and some things through NRCS um, all the way to CRP practices through FSA that, mm-hmm. that can certainly have huge effects on the edge of field stuff, um, wetlands, those kind of things that we can do sometimes through CRP um, all the way to the easement programs. And like I said, I've seen it firsthand. And so I kind of know how it works, but some of those wetland easements that, that NRCS administers, um, are probably the best nutrient treaters that we have out there. I mean, if you've got 
some sort of, of ag landscape runoff into a wetland system, my goodness, we can almost be assured that there's basically zero nutrient pollution coming out of the backside of that water control structure of that wetland for sure. So, Kurt, what else have we missed? You want to touch on, we didn't really talk about um, any of the, you know, crop protection product stuff, um, some of the things going on there, um, current events, and just anything corn growers wise you want to Probably just a plug real quick and the fact that uh, the timing of, of, you know, doing this podcast is is that um, I'm sure you know and uh, hopefully a lot of the uh, growers are aware of is uh, uh, EPA is is wanting to kind of do a little bit more of a a regulatory uh, decision that's not what we would like to be science-based on the control of atrazine. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, They back in... Uh, a couple of years ago, decided that they wanted to, uh, well, actually just recently, they wanted to cut back the, the actual aquatic level of concern, which really limits, um, especially Missouri corn growers. I think that impacts like 85% of corn growers in Missouri, sure. if that were to go. And, yeah. and they they're really just kind of did this uh, without looking at or following the uh, scientific advisory panel that they generally would develop this off of. So uh, we have a, you know, we have a concern with that and the fact that they just decided to do this. So right now until October 7th, uh, we are uh, asking growers or anyone that has a concern with this to submit comments and we will submit comments as corn growers on behalf of those folks. You can go to our website, Missouri, or mocorn.org and learn a little bit more about the atrazine and what it does. Um, if you think about parts per billion, I was thinking about this yesterday. It's like, oh my gosh, a part per billion. You know, if you go from 15 to 14, one part per billion is probably like a literally a drop in a 10,000 gallon swimming pool. Yep. So to, to go from 14 down to three is, is just astronomical. And mm-hmm. it, it affects the, you know, obviously so many. Uh, not just Missouri, but nationwide, the corn production. And I, I don't think that the scientific advisory panel that we were asking them to follow really necessarily uh, has it going down to that level. So very important right now. That's kind of a hot topic with us. Um, so if anyone's got questions, they can contact us, at Missouri Corn Growers. Um, that's that's one we're really pushing right now is we want to get as many comments to EPA as we can by October 7th. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Good. Great plug there. Everybody yeah. needs to go do that. And, and you probably know yourself how many uh, actual mixes of, oh, of oh, chemicals that, it, um, you know, yeah. it's it's like 90 some mixtures yeah. Yep. That if they reduce it, that you're reducing atrazine, and, and I'm sure you know the importance of that. So. Absolutely, yeah. We that's something that we cannot lose really in in corn production. Um, and and I think this moving forward um, may be a theme about the time that we have to you know kind of rattle the door handle a little bit of EPA saying yep. just. They get I feel like very tunnel vision, right? They hire people, and it's like your job is to monitor for atrazine. And, and I, I think they fail to see the bigger picture on a lot of these, these chemistry products, you yeah. know, um, and, and the implications of losing something like that to the, to water quality landscape. Yes. Like, I mean, what we want is water quality. I think we want water quality. EPA wants water quality, mm-hmm. but I think what they fail to see is that we lose something like atrazine. The only way to start with a clean field is basically tillage. And so 
we go straight back to like, oh my gosh, why did we triple nutrient pollution? Well, because we lost, you know, so I think we all want the same thing. It's just making sure that everybody understands the direction that we can collectively agree on the direction to get there. Right. I mean, that, that is, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, there's like a pick list of of practices that you would have to choose from if you were applying. And to say that, you know, they're going to encourage you to incorporate yeah. Uh, the product yeah. is what we just talked about for the last 45 minutes yeah. <laughs> on soil conservation. And exactly. you know, uh, here we are promoting yep. no-till practices and then yep. they're turning around and saying, you know, this is what we right. are. I know. For. So I know. Yeah. It makes me, uh, I think everybody gets tunnel vision and I'm sure I do yeah, too, but sure. it, it's, I think it's a little easier for us because we're used to dealing with such a dynamic system. It's a little easier for us to step outside the box and say, now we kind of see how all this plays together. And um, people from outside the industry, I think it's a little easier for them to get that straight down the tunnel vision. You know, it's like, this is bad. We need to stop using yeah. this. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Encourage folks to go uh, submit submit comments there and, and pay attention um, in the future for for things like this that, that come around, too, because I think it, it absolutely matters. Some of those, you know, legislative calls and letters and and comments on EPA stuff and that stuff all matters. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that we can all take a couple minutes and, and, and do from time to time for sure. So Kurt, if you don't have anything else, I again, just absolutely really appreciate you coming in and, and chatting today. I, I hope we did a good job of, of covering it for everyone. Um, and um, glad that you're over at, at corn growers now and um some cool work you guys are doing. So I appreciate a uh, great opportunity. Um, you know, I, we work together on projects and can, will continue to do so. Um, you know, it's, um, I've heard a lot of people say it's, you know, what you're passionate about. And obviously I'm pretty passionate about soil water conservation and, and nutrients and different things. So I feel like stepping into this role is, is been, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. And I'm looking forward to working with all the partners and it's uh, it's been a pretty good four months so far, and hopefully that continues. But awesome. thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.